Sunday the 6th of October 1974. Two nurses leave Brisbane to hitchhike to Dubbo in New South Wales. They would never make it. This is the case of the murder of Lorraine Wilson and Wendy Evans. Hi, I'm your host Cambo. Grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. Islanders, tonight's show is one that is disturbing in a number of ways. Not only is it still unsolved after all these years, but it may also be linked to several other murders in the same space and time. I've been sitting on this for a while, unsure how to approach it, and now I think I'm ready to finally bring it to you. I'll be citing not only a coroner's report, in fact, I'll be reading quite a bit directly from the report tonight, but also from the major newspapers of the day, such as the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, of which I've been able to find a lot of stuff from my subscriptions to newspapers.com. This subscription only includes The Age and Sydney Morning Herald, not the local Queensland newspapers of the day. I've also watched the 60 Minutes episode in regards to this case, now, I know there's been a lot of noise this week, this week in regards to plagiarism, so I want to make it clear where I get my source material from. Now, before we kick off tonight, this will be part one of the story, which will go into a second, maybe a third part. I don't usually do this, but there's too much content to make it for just one episode. Also, it will be the first of at least three cases covering multiple murders that happen in the area between September 1972 and May 1976. First off, let's get a bit of background of the two nurses. Lorraine Ruth Wilson, 20, born in Dubbo on the 21st of July 1954. Now, Dubbo is located about a five-hour drive northwest of Sydney. She was the youngest of four children. After leaving school, she had various jobs around Sydney and she started nursing at the St George Hospital. That's just down at Cogra, not far from here, south of Sydney, in August of 1973. She completed her first year exams and she was 5 foot 5, medium build, with an olive complexion. She had waist length, light brown, wavy hair. Now there's also Wendy. Wendy Joy Evans, 19, was born on the 31st of January 1956. She was the third of five children. She excelled at school but chose to leave in fifth form or what is now year 11, to study nursing. She started nursing also at the St George Hospital, Cogra, Sydney in mid-August 1973. She too had just completed her first year examinations. She was 5 foot 2 inch, weighed approximately 11 stone or about 70 kilos. She had blue eyes and short, wavy, light brown hair. So Lorraine and Wendy were mates, working and studying together at St George Hospital 
and in August 1974, they decided to take holidays together after spending some time with their respective families. So on the 27th of August, Lorraine went to her parents' place in Dubbo and Wendy spent time at her mother's place in Ashfield. As I mentioned before, Dubbo's about five-hour drive northwest of Sydney, whereas Wendy's mum's house in Ashfield is close to Sydney and close to her work at Cogra. Lorraine then joined Wendy in Sydney, where they took a bus tour together, which took them from Sydney to Brisbane, Townsville, then Mount Isa, Catherine, Darwin and Alice Springs. They then headed to Lorraine's parents' place in Dubbo. Now, that's a long bus trip. If you Google map the route now, going direct from Sydney all the way around back to Dubbo, it's about 8,651 kilometres or 5,375 miles. Now, I'm not exactly sure the day they left, but they got into Dubbo on the 27th of September 1974. Lorraine's parents picked the young women up at the bus stop and they stayed at the Wilsons' residence until Monday the 30th of September. Lorraine and Wendy planned to drive to Brisbane in Lorraine's Volkswagen and that's about a 10-hour drive or 880 kilometres, 550-mile journey. They left on the 30th of September but they had car trouble along the way and the Volkswagen was towed to Gundawindi. Now, that's over halfway to Brisbane. The mechanic told him it would probably take about a week or so to get parts and fix the Volkswagen, so Lorraine and Wendy hitchhiked the rest of the way to Wendy's sister's house, that's Susan Vlismus, and her place at Camp Hill is just outside the Brisbane CBD, and they got there the same night. Lorraine and Wendy stayed in Brisbane for the week, shopping, eating out and having a drink at night. Typical behaviour when you're on holidays. Lorraine called the mechanic several times during the week to see how a car was progressing with the repairs and how much it would be. Now it looks like the mechanic couldn't give her a firm date, so Lorraine and Wendy decided to go directly back to Dubbo as they needed to be back at work by the 10th of October. Lorraine's parents would pick up the car at Gundawindi when it was ready. Lorraine and Wendy told Wendy's sister Susan that they planned to hitchhike back to Dubbo and Lorraine had mentioned that she would like to go to the Gold Coast to get a tan before going back to work. Susan suggested getting a train or bus back to Dubbo rather than hitchhike, but Lorraine and Wendy didn't want to spend the money. Susan did offer to pay the fare, still Lorraine and Wendy decided to hitchhike but didn't elaborate on what route they would take. So at around 11am on Sunday the 6th of October, Lorraine and Wendy left Susan's house, apparently to catch a bus to another suburb, which was better to hitchhike from. Each of them was carrying a small vinyl bag, maybe like those old airline bags you used to see, and they left a bigger suitcase with Susan, and they'd already left one suitcase in the car, which was still getting repaired at Gundawindi. Lorraine was wearing a pair of new blue jeans and a striped cheesecloth cheesecloth shirt. Wendy was also wearing jeans and a blue t-shirt. They were both wearing black slaps. Now they're thong-like footwear with a straw base and velvet straps. Okay, now this was a long weekend, the weekend of Sunday the 6th of October. 
So Monday was a public holiday, and back in the day, the Hardy Ferrodo 1000 race at Bathurst would be held on this weekend. I say this as a big event like this, good as markers for witnesses, that's time markers, for if they have to remember they saw something, it'll be, oh, that was Bathurst weekend, I know it was that date I saw whatever. So by Saturday the 12th of October, Lorraine's mum had not heard from her and she thought they must have gone directly back to Sydney. Now remember back in the day, not everyone had a phone in their house. Of course, mobile phones were more than a decade away, so keeping in touch was rather difficult. Mrs Wilson then called her son in Sydney to ask if they were there and for him to contact the hospital to see if they'd turned up at work. Mrs Wilson also called Susan in Brisbane, but Lorraine and Wendy were nowhere to be found. They would be reported missing by Lorraine's aunt at the Chermside Police Station north of Brisbane on the 12th of October. So police circulated photographs of Lorraine and Wendy appealing for any information. They got very little result. Police found and interviewed the person who first helped them when the VW broke down, They interviewed the mechanic fixing it, the guy who gave them a lift from Gundawindi to Brisbane, and a car salesman they'd been drinking with during the week. Police found they'd not seen Lorraine or Wendy since they'd left Susan's place on the 6th of October, and they all were cleared of any suspicion. There were no confirmed sightings of them since they'd left Camp Hill. Police received hundreds of reports of possible sightings but all the leads led nowhere. Now the trail went a little bit cold. Lorraine and Wendy had disappeared and no one knew where they were or if they did, they were not talking. Nearly two years later on the 25th of June 1976, an elderly courting couple were parking in the bush near Murphy's Creek. That's a small settlement approximately 30 kilometres northeast of Toowoomba. Now, Toowoomba would become important as this story goes on. They'd driven off Murphy's Creek Road, approximately 2.5 kilometres west of the town, onto a dirt road. After approximately 300 metres, they turned onto an even smaller track and after driving another 400 metres, had parked. At one stage, they'd got out the car and gone through a gateway into a wooded paddock. After walking approximately 100 metres from the fence line, they were shocked to find bones they correctly identified as human, along with other personal effects. Fearing they'd discovered a crime scene, they quickly left the vicinity, intending to report the find to police. They drove back towards Toowoomba. Before getting there, they came across a police car and told the officer of their find. They took the officer back to the location where they pointed out two apparent human skulls and other bones. Detectives were immediately summoned and travelled from Brisbane. It was readily apparent to the officers that the remains were likely to be those of Miss Evans and Miss Wilson. For example, a transistor radio with Lorraine Wilson engraved on it was found close by. Now, let's get to the crime scene examination. The area was thoroughly searched by plainclothes and uniformed police with assistance from army personnel with mine detectors. Although some bones were scattered over an area of about 20 metres by 20 metres, 
to largely intact skeletons could be, could be identified. In each case, extensively decayed genes were found over leg bones and underwear found generally in place with, for example, bra clips fastened. In each case, there were loops of cord found around a leg bone in a configuration that made it appear the women had been hobbled with the cord tied around each ankle and linked together in a formation apparently used by pig hunters to secure their prey. The two largely intact skeletons were found reasonably close together, five or seven metres apart. Some of the personal effects were also scattered, but others were grouped together as if they had fallen from a bag or suitcase and lay undisturbed. Numerous personal effects such as cigarette lighters, toothbrushes, hairbrushes, etc. were found at the scene along with numerous items of clothing and some jewellery. In particular, an astrological cancer sign pendant and two rings. The women's wallets, a bank book and a checkbook they were known to have with them were not found at the scene. One of the rings was a gold ring of unusual design, which Lorraine's mother identified as usually being worn by her daughter. The other was a white metal dress ring, commonly called a signet ring, and usually worn by a male. It was not identified by the families of either women as belonging to either of them. So, we'll get to the autopsies now. This, And some of this is distressing, of course. The skull, which was initially and correctly identified as Lorraine Wilson, was fairly intact with the major fractures focused on the left back side of the head. The forensic pathologist who attended the scene and examined it estimated one to three blows would have been necessary to cause what would have been quickly fatal injuries. The skull that was initially and correctly identified as Wendy Evans showed extensive injuries to the facial area, the top of the head and both sides of the head resulting in severe fractures. Her injuries were multiple with obvious large numbers of separate blows causing the injuries. It was suggested her face would have been literally bashed to a pulp and that she had suffered many more blows than would have been sufficient to kill her. They were formally identified by dental records. Now, after the remains were found, a police officer, Ian Hamilton, remembered a strange occurrence about a week before Lorraine and Wendy were reported missing. He checked his notes and he found that on the night of the 6th of October... He was performing duties with the Toowoomba Traffic Branch when he was detailed to take up with the caretakers of Yukana Vale Youth Camp, which was situated approximately halfway between Withcott and Toowoomba on the uphill section of the Toowoomba Range Road. They reported hearing a woman screaming in the vicinity of the camp. He went to the camp just after 9pm. The caretakers took him and his partner to a location about 80 metres from the camp further up the range. They told him they'd heard a woman screaming for 20 minutes to half an hour before they reported their concerns to police. Initially, Mr Hamilton heard nothing, but after a few minutes, he too heard screams. He described them as the most terrifying and horrendous screams he'd ever heard. Blood curdling. Frustratingly, he could not identify even the direction from which the screams were coming as the blustery winds swirled the sound around, 
distorting the direction and distance of its origin. Sometimes it seemed the noises were coming from the east up the range, at other times it seemed they originated at the top of the range. After 30 to 40 minutes, they commenced patrolling the area, driving down through Withcott to Postman's Ridge and along the top of the escarpment. They found and heard nothing despite stopping from time to time and alighting from the police car. At about midnight, they returned to the station and told the commencing crew what had happened. Now, as this occurred a week before the women were reported missing, the possible connection between those events was not considered until the women's remains were found nearly two years later. I guess you can't blame him. Back in the day, young people would go missing and the police would often dismiss it, thinking they would just turn up. Also, I've searched through the newspapers from 1974 when this was happening and it really wasn't widely reported. Nowadays, we have the internet and social media and if someone goes missing, not only can we notice it faster, but the word gets out a lot faster to a wider audience. Anyway, Ian Hamilton called up the Homicide Squad detectives who'd taken charge of the case. He also gave them intelligence about a group of offenders who he knew to be committing sexual assaults in the town. That town being Toowoomba. So after all the media reports of the finding and identifying of the remains, police for weeks and months received hundreds of reports of possible sightings from places as distant as far north Queensland, the Northern Territory and central New South Wales. These all seemed to come to nothing. In July 1976, a $100,000 reward was posted but it didn't prompt any further witnesses to come forward. Now, in today's money, that is approaching a million dollars. Again, many hundreds of leads were run out with no success. Unfortunately, however, some reports which may have been more productive were they investigated, were not followed up. One report that would be very important was from an anonymous caller in July of 1976. This caller told police that two brothers named Hilton were in the habit of picking up schoolgirls in Toowoomba for sex. One girl had reported to the caller that she had resisted their advances and had been tied up and raped. They were said to be associated with a man named Hunt and attempts were made to identify these people but it looks like no Hilton or Hunt was interviewed about any possible involvement in the deaths of Lorraine and Wendy. Now, as we'll see, it's hard to believe that the Hilton brothers were not very well known to police at the time, and that even the mention of their name should have interested the cops immensely. We'll talk about this more as the story goes on. Now, as I said, I'm reading a lot of this from the inquest into the deaths of Wendy Joy Evans and Lorraine Ruth Wilson, which was delivered on the 28th of June 2013, that's nearly 39 years after the event. So there were some witnesses at the inquest that may have cited Lorraine and Wendy on the Sunday of the 6th of October, 1974. Mr. and Mrs. Britcher reported to police on one occasion when travelling down the Toowoomba Range Road returning home on either the weekend of the 6th or 7th of October or the weekend before, they saw a female struggling with a male person beside the road. 
They saw a pale-coloured 63 EJ Holden parked on the left-hand side of the road. As they passed, they heard the girl call out for help, but they didn't stop. As they passed, Miss Britcher looked back and saw the man trying to get the girl into the car and she saw in front of the car two other men and another woman. The detectives who actioned this report found no complaint had been made to police about a woman being assaulted in this vicinity and therefore concluded the report had been eliminated. So basically the police checked out the report of the Britches and as a complaint from anyone regarding assaults hadn't been lodged, they just dismissed it. Well, with hindsight, it's hard for someone that has not only been assaulted but killed to make a report. If only the Britches had stopped and helped. Also in October 1976, a bus driver approached police to report his suspicions that he may have seen the missing women at Oxley. The bus driver said as he approached the western outskirts of Brisbane between Jindalee Lights and the police academy at Oxley on Ipswich Road, he saw two females standing on the outbound side of the road with some luggage. He could not provide a detailed description of the women other than to say they were young, possibly in their 20s, and one was significantly taller than the other. In the short time he'd had them in his sight, he saw what he believes was a 1963 Holden sedan, which was faded light green in colour, and which possibly had roof racks or board racks on top. Now he saw that pull up alongside the women, and they got into the back seat. The vehicle was being driven by a youth who appeared to be about 20 years of age, with shoulder length fair hair, and in his company was another youth of about the same age, with what the bus driver referred to as fair hair in an Afro style. Another witness, Anthony Doughty, approached police in 1976 or 77 and told them that he may have seen the young women with men in a green hold. But this was dismissed by police because they didn't think the girls at that time were in that area. Now, in regards to the britches, why they didn't stop and help, now that would be spoken about at the inquest, and it's called the bystander effect. Now, just a quick wiki definition of that is, the bystander effect is a social psychological phenomenon that refers to cases in which individuals do not offer to help a victim. The probability of help is inversely related to the number of bystanders. In other words, the greater the number of bystanders, the less likely it is that any of them will help. Sort of like, why don't you do it? As some of you may know, we had a murder and stabbing in Sydney the other day where the perp was taken down by members of the public using a milk crate and a chair. So that was sort of the opposite when this guy went going a bit crazy through the streets with a knife, somebody did, or a couple of people did come up and take him down. A lot of people did run for their life as well. Anyway, there was an inquest in 1985 into Lorraine and Wendy's death, but this was more a procedural thing as no witnesses were called and it ended up with the findings that Lorraine and Wendy had been murdered by people unknown. In 2004, Detective Inspector Kerry Johnson was attached to the Homicide Investigation Group within the Queensland Police Service. He was put on cold cases, usually after completing major investigations, if he had no other pressing work. This is how he became involved in the Lorraine Wilson and Wendy Evans case. 
He went over all the case files. He re-interviewed key witnesses and suspects. Well, of course, those that were still alive, which will be one of the saddest things about this case. The length of time that passes will mean that justice has yet to be served. But let's get back to this cold case thing. When Kerry Johnson was transferred in 2012, Detective Senior Constable Christy Smith assumed responsibility for the investigation. She also made further inquiries and collated the available data into a detailed report. Now, before the inquest in 2012, cold case investigators had information from a prisoner that another prisoner had claimed he and another person had picked up two nurses and raped and murdered them. As a second prisoner and the person he nominated as being involved usually resided in Toowoomba, the police there followed up the allegations. So there were a few names that popped up at the inquest, names the police should maybe have known way back in 1976 when the bodies of Lorraine and Wendy were found. They were members of the Laurie and Hilton families, notably Desmond Hilton and Alan Neil Laurie, or Angie as he was known, Also, Ms. Tracy Hilton, the daughter of Wayne Robert Hilton, or Boogie, as he was known. So, these people were to give evidence at this inquest. Now, hearings at the inquest went into 2013. The Laurie and Hilton families would feature in this inquest, and as it gained more publicity, more witnesses came forward in regards to the horrific treatment and by horrific treatment, I mean rape and assault, that they had experienced at the hands of members of these two families. Some of these incidents were apparently reported to police at the time, but if that is true, it seems they were not effectively investigated. The majority were not, because it seems the victims were very young and unsure of their right to make a criminal complaint, and had suffered abuse or neglect within their families, And so, sadly, they were accepting of it. Some of the statements described degrading behaviour, sexual abuse and violence towards numerous women over protracted periods of time by a group of men that include members of the Hilton and Laurie families and their associates, some of whom are suspected of being involved in the deaths of Lorraine and Wendy. Some of those who alleged these suspects had propensity for violence and to force unwilling young women to have sex with them were called to give evidence. Now, the inquest is about the deaths of Lorraine and Wendy, so evidence that had nothing directly to do with the murders is usually not admitted. But because so many of the stories these witnesses gave were shockingly similar, their evidence was allowed to corroborate sworn and tested evidence. This evidence was in regards to members of the Laurie and Hilton families that were in the habit of taking young women into the bush around Toowoomba and forcing them to have sex with threats of violence and actual violence at the time of Lorraine and Wendy's murders. So this is where I will wrap it up tonight. There is a lot to cover in the next episode as I get into the witness accounts at the inquest. There will be statements not only from victims, there will be a jail informer, but also members of the Hilton family, and these are just shocking. Some of the accounts tell of Lorraine and Wendy being seen in distress, yet none of the witnesses stopped to help. As I mentioned before, the bystander effect. 
It's just a short introduction to the case, but as I said next week, we'll be reading out more from the inquest report, including all the witness accounts. It'll shock you how a town can be terrorised by these two families and their cohorts, what they got up to, and we'll go into exactly what happened on the night of the 6th of October, 1974. Now, before we get into the shout-outs for this week, I've started to upload, as I said the last couple of weeks, some of the episodes to YouTube for a greater audience reach. At this initial initial stage, there won't be any fancy video or the camera on me. It will be strictly for those that listen to true crime via YouTube. I have the Samantha Knight case, the Bigger Schoolgirl case up, and also last week's case for Timothy McLean. There will be more to follow. Of course, this one will be up. I might just put them all together in one, one video. So please subscribe to this channel and share with your friends. Now, out to the Patreon shout-outs. There's a big shout-out to Brooke Hardy, Boomfuckalunga Brooke. Another one to... Now, this is Rev, Rev Sarah. I don't know if that's the Reverend Sarah. Maybe it is. But Rev Sarah, thank you very much. And another. I know I shout out every week. But another big one to Maggie James. Thank you very much. Thank you all so much for your support. And thanks so much to all present and past Patreon supporters of the island. It really does make a difference. And as you know, True Crime Island is a totally listener-supported podcast. I keep it ad-free. As you know, I don't like ads. Neither do you. If you want to support the island financially for as little as a dollar a month, you too can become a patron. Go to patreon.com forward slash truecrimeisland and check out the levels and rewards. You can also do one-off donations at paypal.me forward slash truecrimeisland. Also, you can support the island by getting hold of some merch such as t-shirts, hoodies, beach towels, all that stuff. My favourites, as you know, are the Mugs of Rage, all available from truecrimeisland.threadless.com. Remember, listen to what I say this every week, no black mugs until further notice. I do have keychains, lapel pins and stickers which you need to contact me directly for. This can be done by emailing me at cambo at truecrimeisland.com and that's also the best way to contact me personally for anything else such as case requests or just to say, boom vagalanga. Now, you don't have to spend money to support the island. You can also rate and review and tell your friends, family, workmates about the island if they don't know how to tune in, show them how. There's a big world of podcasts out there. There's plenty of them there. If you don't, <laughs> apparently some people don't like the way I swear. So that's okay. There's plenty of other podcasts out there that you might like. Search for True Crime Island on the Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and join the closed group on Facebook. It's always a laugh. Now, a shout, big shout out to Mel. <laughs> Curtis, how are you, mate, in Melbourne? Boom, fuckalunga. And that's about it. Also, all the links on the webpage www.truecrimeisland.com for all that sort of stuff so that's about it for the show tonight as I said next week we've got the uh, second part of this story, it may even go to a third part and it will be part of a whole series out of all the murders that were happening around that time, so lots of love to Maggie James and I'm your host Cambo you've been listening to True Crime Island and as I always say don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night. Bon fuck a longer. <laughs>